This is Leadership in Action, and I'm Mark Stiles, your host. Join me as we delve deep into the passions, expertise, and experiences of Boston area innovators. Sponsored by the Boston Chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization, this is Leadership in Action. Hey, folks, welcome back to Leadership in Action, your Boston Chapter of EO's podcast. Today, we have an SAP. That's right. Pay attention. Someone who can help you. He's got a strong finance background. He's been recognized as a top 20 community volunteer, as well as one of the 100 most influential community leaders for the Massachusetts Hispanic community in El Planeta. 2017, Power Meter 100. Partnering with organizations throughout New England, he strives to provide individual financing solutions necessary for their continued success. Your success, folks. He has worked in various roles in industries such as retail, banking, commercial, corporate credit, commercial lending over the last 14 plus years. In his free time, he volunteers with local nonprofits and serves on boards for the Boys and Girls Club of Boston and Chelsea, as well as with Somerville Community Corporation, supporting those institutions with their youth development and affordable housing efforts. Ooh, I wanna talk about that. He and his wife, Kristen, are the proud parents of two, Isabella and Luca. He's a commercial loan officer and vice president in corporate banking at, drumroll please, Cambridge Savings Bank. Please welcome Javier Bellini. What's up, Javier? Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. You ready to do this? I am. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Cool. What is the most positive lesson that you've learned in your business? The most positive lesson? I would say relationships. Relationships matter relationships matter so it's not about the almighty dollar no no i think you're if you you know you, you take care of people i think profitability comes i think you know there's a way to do it that you know we can all be successful together um so i think it's just a matter about how do you approach your business and i think if you do it in a, in a manner in which they you focus on taking care of that relationship um you know, I think you're, you're going to find success both for yourself and for your client. So it's an abundant mindset. It's all boats rise with the tide. If I can help them, the invisible hand, it will help me as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talked pregame here, Javier, we talked a little bit about the PPP and all of what happened when COVID lockdowns, the fear, the mm -hmm. unknowing, is my business going to survive? What do I do? Can you help paint the picture of what that was like from your seat? Um, yeah. No, Did you, do you want to block it out? Really, I, I have a bit of PTSD there. I'm sure. Um, but I'm sure we all do, right? Uh, you know, if you think back to that time, there was just so much unknown, um, both from just health perspective, how do I keep myself? How do I keep my family safe? And then also how do I keep my business running? Um, and what, how can my bank help? What is the government doing to help? Uh, and then that with, with everything that with PPP, I remember the week of, there was just so much back and forth. We, we try to line up all our, our clients, make sure, you know, who's, who's intending to apply, who would qualify, um, based off the parameters that would, they, they set forward. And, um, 
making sure they had a copy of the application ahead of time, um, which actually changed the day of launch. And we had to we had to update them, but um, it was a very scary time. Um, but fortunately, you know, at least with us, we were in communication with everybody. You know, at least our clients knew as much as we knew. They knew what we didn't know because they were still being determined, right? So um, I think that's one of the things that we were able to help folks with was the angst of the unknown, you know, keeping them informed as things develop, telling them where, you know, what the process will be uh, as much as we knew what the process would be at that point in time. Um, and then helping them navigate um, the application process. Um, and then understanding that when the funds ran dry within two weeks, um, what does that look like? What What's the new application process going to look like? When are they going to get money? Um, so I think really what it mattered is that our clients had a point of contact. They had a relationship, not only with their bank, but they had a lender, right? They had someone they can call up, which to be honest with you, I half the PPP loans I did was for non-clients, people who banked elsewhere that didn't have that relationship with their bank, didn't have a go-to person, didn't, they were calling it like an 800 number, trying to get a, you know, a, call, a call center and trying to get through. And that, that wasn't working or trying to navigate a .com, which was limited or, you know, and crashing. It was, it was, it was tough. So I think, you know, we, we received many referrals from our existing clients, um, you know, fellow business owners who were trying to get a PPP application through and didn't have a, a way of doing it. And in particular in a time where a lot of banks weren't even taking applications for non-customers, they were struggling to keep up with their existing client base. That was huge. Um, and I, I essentially doubled my book of business by just helping out as many people as I could. And then at one point, you know, because we are, you know, we are a commercial bank, but we are a community bank and we have resources. When the writing was on the wall that we were not, we were backed up and we would not get everybody through at, you know, as quickly as we wanted to, I would help navigate, um, you know, the PPP process for clients at other banks that didn't have that relationship and trying to learn how do you, what's the PPP process at, at this bank and that bank and trying to help them navigate that. Although I, I, they were a client and, um, and I was not going to get their their business right now is just a matter at the time it was a matter of how can I help them keep their business afloat. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, those folks that did get PPP loans elsewhere, but I helped them along. And in the end, when they could transition banks and wanted that relationship bank, they, you know, they looked me up and, uh, we've been able to bring them on board. You know, it's, it's the recurring theme that I keep hearing you say, help, help. We want to help and, and your volunteer work and all of what you're doing, your core your core values helping. I remember that time very vividly. It was a window that opened up. You could almost visualize it. There was a window opened up and someone was handing out um, funds to help you stay in business, right? I always thought, I thought it was brilliant that the government was able to shift the line items, right? So rather than all of these people coming onto the unemployment payroll and breaking that system, you know, let's fund it through you, keep you all open, keep the small businesses who get ignored quite a bit, right? They're clearly, you're, you're suggesting they were getting ignored by some of the bigger banks, right? The 1-800 numbers. I can't even fathom what that must have felt like for someone who had a solid business and didn't have a relationship 
that they could rely on because that window was closing fast. It was. And it's not, and, and, all through, and, and, all, and not through a fault of their own. I mean, at this point, you know, you could have been at a bank that it was geographically made sense for you and your business, right? They maybe had a local branch presence that made sense that was convenient, or they had a lot of technology because they're larger, they can afford that. And they um, made a great dot com with online tools. And, and so for one reason or another, you were there, but people lacked that relationship, that point of contact. And during PPP, that was that was pivotal. It was absolutely pivotal. Um, but there was more to PPP uh, in helping our clients. I mean, I remember that year we were in a position because if you think about it, what are some of the industries that were heavily impacted? And, and hospitality was one of them. And we were in a position to defer our hospitality portfolio. And I had I actually had a restaurant in my portfolio, and that was a difference of them being able to pay their quarterly tax bill or not. You know. I, I don't know how many banks did that or would, would be in a position to do that. We were, at that time, fortunate enough that we could, and we did. And, 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 and that, was, that, was a, that was a difference maker for many, for many companies, even companies that were able to get PPP, they still needed further assistance. You know? What was that process like when everyone was on lockdown, you're all being disrupted and removed from the office, and now you have to run this brand new process in a fractured office environment. Yeah. No, it was, it was certainly interesting. Um, <laughs> it was certainly interesting. I remember for about four weeks, um, I worked about four weeks straight um, from either my living room or we, you know, families hunkered down, right? So we hunkered down about our in-laws who helped us um, um, along the way. Um, and I just remember just sitting at the kitchen island, just, working nonstop, trying to get PPP applications through and, and then what's the next step. And we're talking, people are already talking about, you know, forgiveness and signing up. It's just, there was a lot. Um, there was a lot. I remember we, PPP launched on Friday, on a Friday. By Saturday afternoon, because I, I would get the emails counting on my, on my phone. I was on the computer. So um, I had about, what was that? I want to say I had, about five to 600 emails from clients back and forth. And I was able to respond to each and every one of them. It, it was a Herculean effort. And my colleagues were entering applications because at that point it was still a little bit manual. It didn't turn into an automated process until a little bit later. Um, you know, if they're, if they're keying in applications of a particular my clients at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, I'm jumping on. And I'm working through and answering any questions they may have of the application regarding the borrower, you know, into the night. And then at one point we established it and we had like three shifts going, you know, and we were entering applications through manually um, through the SBA portal, as many banks had to do um, until it became automated, right, through some, some um, dot com. Um, we, that's, what, that's how we had to do it. And it was, it was a team lift. Um, so those, those, I would say that first month of PPP was, was, was insane. Absolutely insane. Um, but we got, we got, we got everybody through, we got, you know, between the first round and the second round, you know, those who hung in, because as we know from, you know, what's come out that only a very small percentage of people got their application through in the first, in the first go. I think it was less than like 5% of companies nationwide or something like that. Um, but it was a very small percentage, but everybody that hung in there, we got them through on that, on the, when they've reopened. 
And then consequently, when they added a second round, um, yeah, we got everybody through. So no one who stuck with us uh, didn't get the application through. There must be a tremendous amount of people who are super grateful for what you were able to accomplish as a team to get that done. Yeah, I think, I mean, for, you know, I think for, for folks who had existing relationships that just, you know, further bolstered and deepened that relationship. Uh, and those, you know, for those relationships that are relatively new, that really, you know, you, you proved your worth, absolutely. And yeah. you able to cultivate that relationship. So, um, you know, my clients call me directly, you know, they can call me in the evenings, you know, when they need something or if it's time pressing. Um, we're very and reachable, you know, which is important. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cambridge Savings Bank had to, in essence, vouch to the government, though, like these are good borrowers. This is you had to you had to make sure that this was a reputable, credible business that was following all the rules so that if it was going to be need to be paid back, because we didn't know, did, did this yeah. need to be paid back? Is this going to be a low interest loan? What is what's the deal here? Mm-hmm. And you're putting your stamp on people you didn't even know. Right, right. Because you're, this is, this is, this, this is a loan and it, it is being booked as a loan. And there's a forgivable, uh, forgivable component, which is still, was still evolving at the time. Yeah. Um, not to say Ray was going to get hundred percent of their loan forgiven. So there was a, that a thought that we're going to be holding some form of this debt. Um, and you know, we, you know, we had to make sure that Every, you know, these are a lot of them were existing customers, so that made it a little bit easier. We knew our borrowers, right? We could appoint to know that. Um, and we might dig a little bit deeper than maybe some other financial institutions. But when things go south, we know the business. We Because we took the time to understand the business, we're able to advocate for their business. And when they need the capital, when they need it most, they're not fearing that it's not going to be available, right? So that's really why people come bank with us. We take the time. We advocate, and then we make sure they have the capital in place when they need it most. It's it's a simple strategy, but you know it's not often adhered to at other institutions. You know, so. and for, for those for those legacy clients that have been good and loyal, and the relationship is is strong, you get to that moment, and you get a phone call from that person who says, "Javier, you got to help my buddy out. He's in EO. He's got an awesome business, and she is not." getting responded to with their bank. He has been entering this. Will you talk with them? So in essence, you're accepting their word, right? Because mm-hmm. it's still, you're going to be, you You have to answer to the folks at Cambridge Savings Bank. Cambridge Savings Bank is going to have to answer to their board. Their board, in essence, is, is answering to the United States government because this was a government-funded program. Mm-hmm. And you're trusting the brand of EO. Right. So thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, no, we, uh, we got referrals from existing clients who led to other clients who then referred to us, you know, family members. There was a father, son. And, um, and, you know, so it, one, one thing led to another and no, we certainly, we reached a lot more people that way in a short period of time than we traditionally were. Unfortunately, it came about because there was, you know, what we were dealing with, with COVID and, 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 and the situation necessitated that, um, I think we've done well by attracting, we, we, people decided to bank with us thereafter. And since then they've stayed. And that's a testament to, we helped you on a very difficult time. Let us continue proving our worth. 
and they decided to come over permanently, which is which is good, which is good. We built a lot of good relationships. But outside of that, if you think about it, there was I had a client that you know had a great opportunity during the summer of 2020. Um, it was already in process to um, expand down to South Carolina because you know they had a great building, the equipment was down there. They were a manufacturer. They have a great uh, workforce um, uh, down in South Carolina. Um, it and this was happening during COVID and you know the shutdown and PPP and stuff like that, where companies are struggling just to keep keep the lights on. This company was going to lose out on on a strategic opportunity that they've been searching for for years, and it took. A little bit longer. However, we knew the business. We certainly advocated for the business, and we got we got the we got that deal across the finish line. And to this day, uh, I'm actually getting together with them in two days. But to this day, they're doing really well. South Carolina is phenomenal. It was a great acquisition with them, uh, and we're helping them as far as some other things that we do. We also help you know that that business continuity, that transition from one generation to the next. Uh, and so we're 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 doing that now with them. So. Um, there's a multitude of ways of helping people, but I think at the core of it, uh, it all just goes back to relationships, you know, relationships and helping people. So that's a great segue. So I've got a great relationship with my bank. They're, they're wonderful. They give me tickets to games. They sometimes even send me cookies and, you know, I, they've got good interest rates and then Silicon Valley happens. Like how, what, what do we, what do we do there, Javier? Yeah, no, that's um, thing, right? So, uh, with with that, I think that caught that caught everyone by surprise. It caught folks who banked at Silicon Valley by surprise. It caught the industry by surprise. Um, you know, it just caught us all by surprise. I mean, if you look at it for, for, the, for the most part, um, Sil Silicon Valley was doing a lot of the right things. However, um, when we come to find out, they had a lot of concentrations customer concentrations uh, in particular. So it's hot money, as they say. And when, you know, the rumor starts and it just picked up pace, um, you know, it, it put them in a really bad position. But they weren't the only bank either. First Republic was another one. So, um, you know, you take the three bank failures this year um, in, in the aggregate, and it was significantly more than all the bank failures that we had during the Great Recession. Um, so that just to put it, you know, to give you some context to the, how significant of an issue it was this year, um, you know, so people learn through PPP, it's important to have a relationship with, with someone at the bank, you know, that can advocate that can, you know, in times when times are tough, you know, I can leverage that relationship to help my business. I think what we learned this past year is it's important to do some form of due diligence on your bank. Why do you bank there? Is it just convenience or, you know, you know, what kind of due diligence are you doing to understand the, the strength of that bank? What are their deliverables and, and what, what would you do in a worst case scenario? You know, so people learned a lot in that, in that, that time. And I do recall when I remember, um, it was an, I think it was another Friday. It was, I think it was. It was so, over the weekend. It, if it wasn't for All In Podcast, I wouldn't know what was going on. And they broke yeah. it down very clearly for me. Yeah. So I remember I remember I was going into a meeting. It was around lunchtime. And I get a call from someone who uh, I know in a nonprofit uh, who had all the, the, the primary banking relationship was at Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, everything was happening. It was happening very quickly. And I get a call. It's like, how quickly can I get my money out? How quickly can you, you know, 
open accounts for me. Um, and, you know, we, we rushed, we tried to get it done. But I think 20 minutes thereafter, uh, all the bank's assets were frozen. And that's when it was announced that they're going in receivership and, and they can eventually be taken over. So, um, and people at that point didn't know if they were going to be, when would they get access to their funds? Um, next week, maybe you get, you know, access to up to a certain dollar amount. Eventually they actually just said, you, you can have all your money, but, um, it was a scramble to get their, 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 their funds out, which also hastened the situation. Right. So, um, and then, uh, I think first Republic had happened over the weekend. So, um, but again, that was another time that, you know, not an existing client that we're getting phone calls from, uh, uh and, and seeing how quickly we can help them, um, and move them over. And then to this day, they're, they're still with us. Uh, they didn't go back. Um, despite, I think there was a little bit of arm pulling for, for folks to go back, but, um, how could you ever make me go back to that PTSD? Right. I mean, that's like my favorite Christmas movie of all time. It's a wonderful life. George Bailey, that's the run on the bank. Like, I don't want to ever see that again. So Javier, if I'm looking at, you know, doing due diligence on my next banking move, like, what do you recommend we look at? Like, what, what should we be looking at to. Yeah, I love Javier's great guys. He's telling me he's got good interest rates. He's telling me, you know, I can borrow up to $20 million. But how do I know if I'm going to move all of my business assets into this bank, what do I want to make sure to make sure that it's safe? Yeah, I mean, if, I mean, if you're chasing rates, just know if they're paying, um, you know, above market rates, you know, what does that tell you? You know, so I think you have to balance it as a business owner. If you were running a bank and you're trying to attract business, you know, what are some of the things you would have done? Um, and relative to the market, if you have these market outliers that I would be concerned with. Um, but I think, you know, know why you're banking at the bank. There's different types of bank structures. Um, you know, is it a mutual bank? Is it a stock bank? Their goals are completely different. Therefore, how they're managed is completely different. Um, a simple Google search can help. As far as trying to, you know, not everybody's going to understand balance sheet metrics. There's people that work at banks that don't understand how to read a bank's balance sheet. So we're not going to get to that extent. But I think, you know, do some form of Google. There's always going to be bank reviews. What are you hearing? You know, there's ways to do that. Um, but what about the a, diversification piece, right? So they're in, they're, they have this interest exposure or they have commercial office exposure. Like how do we figure out, you know, where we want to maybe stay away from versus dig in and, and, you know, is, how do I find out the group that digs down, you know, five feet and a mile wide versus a mile deep, five feet wide? No, no, fair question. I mean, I think to, you can ask the question. Yeah. If it's uh, if it's a stock bank, all, you know, that information is publicly available. Uh, if it's uh, not, um, often banks are, uh, prepare a financial soundness uh, report that they can present to you like on a quarterly basis. Uh, and that give you some sense of how they're running, right? Um, you know, sometimes you're just not going to understand, you know, what's the exposure to, say, office space, right, in their commercial real estate portfolio. I mean, that gets, that's very minute. Uh, I don't think you're, you're, you're going to be able to get into that level of detail. Um, and then there's going to be people have different opinions about it, even if you do, right, mm -hmm. or, or what that means. I think, um, you know, doing some form of financial due diligence on stock bank, you can do that. There's always, um, there's rating agencies. Um, there's also on mutual banks like ourselves, we have a bond that is, that has a rating, right? 
And that's one way to understand, well, you know, what's the financial standing of that of our bank, right? We also prepare a financial soundness letter as well. So, um, but just have an understanding of why I'm there. And then also for those who say they're above the FDIC uh, limits, right? Which is 250,000. You know, there's a way to structure it to get more. And there's also products out there um, that we have at our disposal that can help ensure deposits above the 250 limit. Um, so that's so that's a, that's a, the service we do provide, and we have clients who have who have taken advantage of it um, as an abundance of caution. Um, is that a matter of simply splitting it up into different accounts, or is there another product that is like an product. enhancer? There's another product out there, and then we manage it, and we're spreading you across however many banks it takes to cover all your deposits. Um, but you always manage one bank, and your money your money's controlled by one one financial Interesting. Um, so we do have that. Um, and, you know, particularly for some nonprofits, uh, mandated by their board, they've taken advantage of it. Um, so there are ways to help mitigate the risks. I think just choosing a bank because they're geographically closer to you. Um, and that's convenient when a lot of things you can accomplish online now, even process checks, right? You have a little check reader at, at the office. You can do that if you're check heavy, right? Um, you know, online mobile banking. Uh, this means that you don't have to actually be pigeonholed to a particular branch, right? Um, you know, and if you're chasing a rate because they're going to offer you 6% when the market's off, you know, really at four, four and a half per, you know, then you have to wonder, well, why is they have to aggressively chase deposits in that sense? Mm -hmm. So I think you just have to take a step back to try to see the forest through the trees and see, you know, what is the bank trying to accomplish right now, you know? Um, so I think there has to be some thought put into why you bank, where you bank. Um, and then with PPP, I think it's important for you to have a relationship there. Um, and someone you actually not only know, but, you know, trust. So, so entrepreneurs out there, I think, uh, you want to have a sit down with your fractional CFO or your CFO and, you know, dig in a little bit deeper and, and have that person maybe talk with Javier's and get you out of the middle of it. Um, speaking of efficiencies, yeah. do you, uh, are you, are you looking into the crystal ball of, of artificial intelligence to see where it's going to help and make your job more efficient? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're still, I think it's still early on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's, I, from my understanding, it will have an impact. There's no doubt. Uh, um, you know, how can banks deploy AI portfolio analytics? You know, that's a good starting place. Um, you know, decide, and the banks have access to a tremendous amount of information. Um, how does that information, how can you leverage that information to create products that make sense for your clients and also to be able to track new clients? So, um, you know, portfolio, portfolio analytics, I think, would be a key component of AI. Mm. So. Sharing experience. I, I think the industry's slowest to adopt change is the banking industry and the legal industry so uh we get to watch a lot of the the early adopters and the entrepreneurs figure some things out before we slowly turn the titanic but there's there's reason for that in our in, yeah. in, in our defense if you think about it the banking industry is heavily regulated mm. um so there's a lot of continuous compliance courses that i have to take on an annual basis but there's reasons for that mm -hmm. right and um it takes time it's to work through all the kinks and see how it will impact the industry. So AI is coming. Um, 
you know, but in time, in time, I think we have to understand what that means. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. We won't even get into the conversation of crypto here. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll hold that for, for our next conversation. Um, yeah. Now, for you, yeah. you have a certain niche at the bank. I know the bank represents a lot of different avenues. I mean, we talked about ESOPs pre-call. We talked about different uh, specialists that you have. But you, Javier, yeah. who's your ideal client? Right. I'm my ideal client would be a, you know, a privately owned or family business um, that's going through some form of uh, growth or acquisition, taking care of an opportunity, or even you know, business continuity, passing it from one generation to the next. Um, that needs some guidance, looking for a, a relationship in banking that can help them grow when there's opportunities to grow or tackle a challenge when there's a challenge for the, for the organization, whether it's internal, external uh, forces. Um, and oftentimes we, we act as an extension of management, you know, uh, you know, we deal with businesses of all sizes and some of them have pretty built out management teams, um, access to boards, you know, and, and, and somewhere it's, you know, it's me and you know my wife or, or vice versa. Right. So, um, sometimes we, we need to bounce things off of and The best thing about bouncing things off of your, your, your lender, um, it gives them an idea of where you're headed and how they can help. And because there's some planning involved, oftentimes we don't charge a fee for the consulting. So that's helpful. Right. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and that's for-profit and non-profit alike. You know, we do quite a bit with our non-profit group. Um, we have uh, a decent amount of non-profits that choose to bank with us. Um, we volunteer. We leverage our foundation. Um, you know, like you mentioned before, I do serve on two boards, and the bank's been tremendously supportive of of the two organizations that I, that I spend time with, um, you know, both for, you know, helping our, our local youth and, and, having a safe place to go to after school and learn and grow. And then also um, helping folks in, um, in need of, of, of housing. Cause we have a housing crisis, unfortunately in Massachusetts and like many other parts in the country. And there's, you know, there's very, it's challenging as far as affordability is concerned. So I'm trying to do more on that. And that space is, is uh, certainly worthwhile. Um, but I think we have an obligation to do it. So does the bank encourage you to join boards and follow your heart and pick organizations that you're passionate about? Or are there certain organizations that the bank is really heavily uh, behind and they encourage you to go there? How, do, how, does, how does that fit into the overall person at Cambridge Savings Bank contributor? I, think it's, you know, I appreciate asking that. I think it's a little bit of both. Right. Um, we may have established relationships with nonprofits that come to us as like, hey, we're, we're really looking to fill this position on the board and we're looking for this set of skills. Do you, do you know anybody? You know, is there anyone at the bank? Um, and and uh, so the foundation would help with board placement. Right. We have that. We actually have a process for that. Uh, um, in addition to that, you may feel passionately about a nonprofit that you volunteer with and you need financial support or, you know, or you need just volunteers and you can come to the bank and, and leverage your, your employer essentially to help support that organization that you feel so, you know, so passionately about. So it's twofold. It's twofold. So, um, 
one of my boards, I was, um, we already had an established relationship here and then the other one didn't and, and they, and they do now. So, um, it's not always clients, you know, we don't bank the entire nonprofit community here in Massachusetts. I mean, it's a large community. Um, but we do try to help as much as we can when we can. I mean, within, within our, you know, with, with what we can handle, I would say. Right. So. So I love that you're a true partner to the business, to the nonprofit. I imagine working with the nonprofit, you're probably more involved because the leadership isn't focused on profit, right? So their focus isn't on finance. They typically don't have a CFO. More and more nonprofits who we find doing it effectively and really successfully treat it like a business and put leaders and marketing CMO, you know, and then fit the right seats in the right spot. Now you, Javier, that's your ideal client. That's your ideal, uh, altruistic pursuits. If someone's listening to this and they're like, well, that's not really my thing. Can you act as quarterback, like take on a relationship and then hand it out to a specialist in your organization? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, unfortunately as it pertains to CEO, um, you know, we have, you know, there's two lenders, right? There's Brad uh, Fitz, myself. Uh, Brad heads up our business banking group. Um, and he works with, you know, our small and medium entrepreneurs um, who lend, whose lending needs a little bit more modest, right? Um, and then I, through growth and whatnot, um, there's oftentimes that Brad has a company that is growing and, I, and it gets to a point where their lending needs a little bit more robust and we'll, you know, I'll, I'll step in um and 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 help them grow um and that and that's just one way of helping out our, our existing clients and people that want to you know take a look at cambridge savings bank so um yeah so and vice versa we might take someone on that i think it makes more sense i had a client that it, it honestly made more sense after the years um to be in business banking, I introduced him to Brad uh, and his team, and you know they've refinanced their mortgage, and and can they continue to be a long term customer? But they're it's all about fit, relationships fit. They can still call me, they still do. Um, you know, uh, case in point, um, a lot of those folks that that we took in for PPP of all shapes and sizes, right? That came referred in. Uh, that was more help everybody. We'll worry about placement later. Uh, and we did. And then over a period of time, when it made sense, I, um, we transitioned them to our business banking group. Um, and they still reach out to me from time to time, just check in uh, and vice versa. But they're doing really well in Brad's group too. So um, it's really just I, identifying what, what makes the most sense for your business right now. And then if things change as your company evolves and your needs evolve, then yeah, we, I'm sure we'll have the products and, and, and services that you need. We just have to make sure you're in the right group. So for the entrepreneurs listening, product, market, fit, right? It's fit. Relationships fit. I love it. We hear a lot about Brad. Brad comes to a lot of the events. So folks, you know Brad from Cambridge Savings Bank. So Brad's one tier for a fit. Javier's another fear, uh, tier for a fit. And then I'm sure there's other tiers and specialties and uh, activities that are, that are wonderful fits too. Before I let you go... Um, I love how uh, charitable you are with your time and, and raising awareness for organizations that, that need you to help raise awareness. You mentioned affordable housing. Um, this is 
near and dear to my heart. It's more than a crisis. Um, it's, it's, it's really at a precipice right now, especially here in Massachusetts, the, the cost, the affordability right. of housing. What's the solution, Javier Bellini? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, thank you for teeing that up, Mark, like that. Um, <laughs> to put me the hot seat. I, I mean, there is, in order to solve it to the extent that the housing crisis is, I don't think there's just one solution. I no think, way. I think it's, it's multiple things that we have to do. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's for sale housing. So giving people the opportunity to own their home and, own their, you know, lock in their cost of capital because rents are eventually going to continue going up, even mm -hmm. if it's at a, at a reduced rate. And also creating more housing stock um, for rentals um, at, at affordable rates. Um, changing zoning laws um, in towns that would, uh, which right now are um, prohibitive in developing um, affordable housing, uh, in in changing it to the way that they they promote um, attracting new affordable housing projects. Um, and, and I think we have to recognize it's a team lift. Um, the, the, the CDC, um, the nonprofit that I, that I volunteer with, um, is in a city where it's very tight. There's not many opportunities at this point, um, for land, um, you know, you're pretty much reusing existing land and repurposing it and, you know, maybe raising some buildings, um, houses and to put a bigger building, um, we have to go further out and now instead of, you know, going to towns that have more land to develop, um, that is close to transit, right. For our workforce to commute in and out of, um, and then developing, if you can, um, you know, some form of housing trust in your town, um, and, 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 and getting that funded so that the town can be a partner, uh, in some of these projects. Um, so they can attract the right project that makes sense for their, for their town. Uh, because when you start building, right, you're going to put, you know, there's going to be more load on the infrastructure, right? The roads, the bridges, um, you know, um, emergency schools. services, the schools, right? So we also want to make sure that the town is, is in a position that they can bring in more and create the housing stock, not through just zoning and attracting developers, but also can support that, that growth, right? Um, so it's a team left. There's a lot of um, organizations, nonprofits, semi-government agencies involved. And I think we all need to come to the table, regardless of what side of the aisle you are, um, because I think at the end of the day, we want our neighbor to live in a house they can afford um, that's, that is clean and respectable. Because um, I think that's pretty much one of our founding principles is that, you know, is that people... You know, people need a place to live. Yeah. You know, they need to feel that pride, the pride of ownership, but also the pride of this is, this is different, right? So one of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, these affordable housing um, projects, a lot of them are dormitory style, right? Not everybody wants to live in that type. And I get it where your, your density in the city, I know the city of Boston's doing some wonderful creative things. Their innovation lab is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I love what they're doing. Um, and then you start to spread to the suburbs. I love the idea of, of creating more density, you know, zoning, changing two acre zoning. Come on, like, let's, let's be real about this one acre zoning. Let's talk about this. Right. But when you start to use the term affordable housing, 
people freak out, right? They call them NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard. I heard a term recently, cave people, citizens against virtually everything, right? So they'll go in. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's changing our community. I don't want it, right? I propose um, softening the language. I do a podcast with a fellow, Dr. Joe. And he's a psychiatrist and he always talks about how words are so important, right? What's that word affordability? What is it doing to certain people? What if we called it common sense housing? What if we were to say, we need to figure out common sense housing. How can we solve what Javier and all of the people he's working with are working so diligently to solve? It's got to be common sense. Right. You know, uh mixed income housing, uh, there's surely a negative connotation, right? Um, so some of these words and, and, and the NIMBY and NIMBYism, uh, it's out there. Same thing with the cave. I mean, I, but I think in, and this is just my opinion that, you know, you're trying to build a community and it is, a, and you're going into these communities to help, you know, if it's in the town, they're growing or there's already established uh, community, if it's tighter density, whatever it may be. But you're going into a neighborhood with people who live there, grew up there, right. and you're bringing developments there. You have to be considerate, mm-hmm. right? You can't just try to put up the biggest building that can fit within, you know, the zoning and that you probably got advanced, you know, on everything to make it work. Um, you're going to upset the people that surround that, um, even if, in theory, they would support affordable housing development, right? So I think I think that you have to be able to bridge the divide because these projects are very important. It's a heavy lift to do them, to make the economics work and get the zoning working, everything working together. And it's a multi-year effort per project. But I think we have to be respectful of The residents of where they live, the community that, you know, there's a reason why we're going into those communities that sought after because the people that are already there, we just have to make sure that we respect the people that are there, but we also bring opportunity for people that live there that can stay there. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not about just drink, bringing people from one town to, an, to another. There's people, oftentimes people just getting, they, they just get priced out of their own town. Real estate taxes alone can price out a fixed income, right? Exactly. So, so we want to help maintain that sense of community. Um, and, and, and housing stock, gets, as they gets older, it needs to get redeveloped. Either it's renovation, you, you know, depending on maybe you might have to knock it down and build something better. But um, I think we have to be able to listen to both sides and try to meet in the middle. And right now... Um, because of the crisis and how hot button of an issue this is, you do have people who are, in, you know, as they say, NIMBY, right? Um, but then you also have people that want to do too much in a particular area right. and it's extreme. So you're dealing with two extremes and you have to try to bring people together. And that's what I try to do. Not only just, you know, my work on the, with the nonprofit, just managing board dynamics, because even on this, the same organization, you know, have people of different opinions on the same board, Right. Um, but also trying to manage um, relationships within the community and our partnerships and and everybody making sure everybody's voice is heard, you know. Um, but I think it's important that we all can collaborate because ultimately at the end of the day, we have to build more and more housing for our children and our children's children, you know. And to be honest with you, it's more immediate than that. We can't yeah, meet the demands right now, right? Um, 
And I look at people that I know that, you know, I, I was fortunate to be able to buy a home in the town I grew up in. Um, but a lot of my friends, in order to afford a home, had to go one, two, three, four towns over, okay, uh, because of the economics of it. And in, in towns are just becoming less and less affordable, even if you have first-time home buyer programs. The math just doesn't compute. Even if you have down payment assistance programs, the math doesn't compute. You know, um, I wonder if there's a if there's a solution around because a lot of the folks that are downsizing or moving out or moving to Florida are giving the opportunity for the new family to love on that house and love on that community or come back to that community. I wonder if there's something available where, you know, the seller doesn't have to take it all off the table. Right. Let's put a low interest second mortgage. You know, you bought the house for eighteen thousand dollars. It's being sold for one point two. Like, can you put a. $300,000 second mortgage on that you don't get the tax hit right away. Let's talk about that, you know, Absolutely. and let's annuitize some of, you know, your profit in, and let them, let them grow into it. You know, you see that a little bit more and more from time to time in commercial. Yeah. You do like a, you know, like a, a seller hold back, a, a private seller note mm -hmm. as a second mortgage um, that's subordinated to the bank. Um, you know, I think we have to come up with creative ways of, making the economics of these transactions actually feasible. Um, and like I said at the beginning, there's, there's no one solution. It's a, I think it's a multifaceted approach. Um, but I think at the core of it, people have to be focused on relationships, respecting people with varying opinions, trying to collaborate and bring people together uh, for the betterment of the community. Um, and and, and respecting everybody's ideas because, again, it's not one idea that's going to get it done. It's going to be multiple ideas. Um, so, This has been a fascinating conversation. I hope it's been good for the listeners because um, I'm at the edge of my seat uh, talking with, with Javier here. And I'm looking forward to talking with you more at length on this topic. So hopefully I'll see you at one of the EO events. And if you do see Brad or Javier at one of the events, please go up and say hello. and. Um, and engage with them a little bit. Javier, how does someone get in touch with you, Brad, your team, if they want to get in touch with you guys? Sure. Um, they could uh, get in touch with Brad and myself. I think our information is through EO. So I think as a strategic partner, everybody can access that information. But you can reach me uh, at 781-658-7181. Again, the number is 781-658. 7181. That is my cell phone. You can call me direct. Uh, or you can shoot me an email. Uh, it's Jay Bellini. That's J-B-E-L-L-I-N-I at CambridgeSamiesBank.com. Look at that, folks. He's giving you his personal information. That's the relationship he's talking about right there. And that's the relationship that we have with our SAPs, members of the Boston chapter of EO. Javier, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to chatting more. I wish you the best of luck with all of what you're doing, especially with solving the affordability housing crisis. Well, well, thank you for having me on. I, I hope I can do. Uh, I hope we can do it. I hope we're we counting on you. Yeah, we're focused. But I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at other EO events. Uh, I wish you and your family a happy holidays. Thank, thank you. you. And audience, folks, listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you learned something. If you thought of somebody that Javier, Brad, or the folks at Cambridge Savings Bank can help, share this with them. Let them know 
their information is on here. It's at the end. It's a nice conversation. You get to know who you're working with before you start working with them. Thanks again, Javier. All right. Thank you, Mark. Folks, this has been another exciting episode of Leadership in Action, your Boston chapter of EO's podcast. We will see you next time. Leadership in Action is sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. As the world's only peer-to-peer network exclusively for entrepreneurs, EO helps transform the lives of those who transform the world.